I'm Jonathan Bastian, this week on KCRW's Life Examined. In our current era of disconnection and distraction, are we losing our ability to listen? And at what cost? That's really what life is all about, is connecting with others and learning from others and growing with others. And the only way you can do that is by listening to them, finding out what's on their mind. And later, some simple tips and secrets to really hearing what someone has to say. Common myths around listening is it's your job as the listener to make sense of what they're saying. The dirty little secret of listening is to be potent and powerful as a listener. Your job is just to help the speaker make sense of what they're thinking. Three different experts join us to talk about the art, science, and practice of listening well, and why it can be so hard, especially now. That's coming up on KCRW's Life Examined. It's fair to say that we've become a culture of talking and sharing. Stories, videos, podcasts, social media, you name it. But how many people are actually listening? And by that I mean really being present, taking it all in, thinking about it. When it comes to engaging with friends and family, do you have a tendency to interrupt or predict what that person is going to say even before they finish speaking? Do you spend too much time lecturing rather than listening? In a new book called You're Not Listening, What You're Missing and Why It Matters, author and journalist Kate Murphy analyzes the research on listening. She also speaks with people who do a lot of listening. Spies, priests, psychotherapists, bartenders, hairdressers, air traffic controllers, and radio producers. What she learned was that active listening can truly impact how we relate and communicate with each other. With the right skills, we all can and should become better listeners. Kate Murphy, welcome to Life Examined. I'm pleased to be here. Thanks for asking me. Well, well, I first came across some of your writing in the New York Times. Uh, you were going into some of the research you've been doing about listening, and there were just there were a couple sentences that just just jumped out to me, as I know they did to many others. And you talked about researching this book, and you said, "quote I learned something incredibly ironic about interpersonal communication: the closer we feel towards someone, the less likely we are to listen carefully to them." You talk about something called closeness communication bias. And I think anybody in a close relationship or with kids, a significant other, this is something they have felt so deeply. Can you talk a little bit more about this and and how you came across this in your research? It seems just so fundamental to relationships. Well, in close relationships, actually, the after I love you, the most common refrains are, you're not listening. Hmm. That's not what I said. (laughs) those types of things. And that's because the closer you are to someone, as wonderful as intimacy and connection are, they also breed complacency. We get this idea of, oh, I know what you're going to say. I know you so well. I know you like the back of my hands. I I know what you're going to say. So people just shut off. They assume they know everything at a certain point, so they really don't need to listen. And they don't do it in an unkind way or necessarily a conscious way. It's just our brains are very good at developing patterns and switching off and going on to other things. But the key thing to remember is each of us is evolving and changing every day. You are not the same person you were yesterday, and you won't be the same person tomorrow as a result of the conversations you've had, the experiences, every day, every bit of your life changes you. So if you stop listening to your intimate or romantic or friends, colleagues, if you start listening, stop listening to them at a certain point, you will lose touch with who they are because they are constantly changing. So if you aren't always listening, checking in, finding out where they are, what's on their mind, then you will get to that point where, as often happens in relationships, where people say, you know, I don't know you anymore, Mm. or you don't know me at all. And it's really probably true if you do stop listening and paying attention to where the other person is. When did you first hear of this idea of communication bias? Had this been something that was studied in universities by sociologists or psychologists? Do we know a little bit more about where this idea came from? 
Well, it's actually well documented in the research. Um, there have been several social science studies, but the ones in particular that I found fascinating was where they actually had couples come into laboratories mm. and they had them, in one particular exa uh, experiment I'm thinking of, they had them sit in a circle, but facing away from one another. And it was, it was several couples and they would ask they would ask the person to say something and it was usually a common phrase but in their intonation that they assumed that their couple their partner would understand them better than one of the strangers from the other couples mm. and it turned out in the research that actually the intimate partner didn't do as well mm -hmm. as the stranger because they had all these assumptions and were thinking oh yeah i, I know what she meant instead of really listening and trying to figure it out. So interesting. Why, I mean, why, why do you think we do this? What, what about our brains or the way that we're made up makes us put these assumptions out there that we know what the other person's gonna say? We don't need to listen closely because we know what the answer's gonna be. I mean, is it a way to just compartmentalize? Is it a laziness? Why do you think this happens? Well, you know, our brains are wonderful things, but what they are actually essentially are prediction mechanisms. Mm. We are wired to make predictions about everything because if we weren't predictive uh, mechanisms, it'd be too much information. Right. You know, yeah, we, right. there's just so much going on that we like to have things. That's why people love routines because they, they can put that on autopilot and they can pay attention to something else. Because our brains use an incredible amount of energy, and as a result, we're always trying to conserve it. And that's what often happens in relationships. And there's also this comfort of feeling like, I, I know you, and so you're not a threat. Mm -hmm. and, and it's vulnerable to be in a relationship. And part of that problem is, is, you know, it, it keeps us from really opening up to the other person, but also once we do open up, we feel like, okay, I've made it. I, um, I, I liken it of when you take off in an airplane, there's sort of that critical phase of life when you take off in an airplane and you're so concerned with getting the airplane all structured so you can get to long-term cruise. Right. So you get to cruising altitude where you, ha where you don't have to worry about as much. You don't have to worry about getting the gear up. You don't have to worry about getting your navigation put together. You're just in a more relaxed state. And so in relationships, we kind of do the same thing. And that's what's wonderful about relationships is that you can be comfortable with that person. And so, but it's just, it's two edges to that is you're, you're comfortable and you don't have to worry about being on your guard. But at the same time, it does breed that complacency of I already know everything. And I don't need to keep discovering you where you actually do. And then you go on to write about something that, that really caught my attention. Um, you referenced a Harvard sociologist, Mario Luis Small. Um, in his research, he found that a number of people, even if they were in intimate relationships or had people very close to them, they would oftentimes confide some of their secrets or the most pressing material to strangers or people that didn't know them as well. Uh, that seemed like the more appropriate outlet for some of that material we keep so buried in us. Why was that? Well, I think there are two things going on there. First is, you know, in uh, Mario's research, he, he found that, um, that the reason why they actually actively avoided mm -hmm. telling their intimates this information. <laughs> right, right. And the reason why they did that is they feared blowback or mm. drama or judgment. And a stranger is not going to do that. They don't have that long history. But also, I think it's real important to remember, and this has a lot to what I'm trying to get across in the book, is that you will tell people things depending on how you perceive them as a listener at that moment. Mm. And if by happenstance you encountered someone who seemed receptive and wasn't going to judge you, you are going to tell them. Because, you know, what, when you think about it, when something really bad or really good happens to you, what's your first inclination? To tell somebody. Sure. To share it. And so, you know, you'll tell your pet 
plant. You'll tell a potted plant, you know, if nobody else is around. <laughs> right, right. So, you know, that's part of it. But there's that. But it depends because your pet seems like it's listening. You know, and it's mm-hmm. not going to jump in, particularly when they're cocked. They're, you know, it's a dog and it cocks their head in one direction. Yeah. And, you know, mm-hmm. you think, okay, this person's really, this little thing is really taking in yeah, what I'm course. saying. Right. But it, as I said, it's how you're perceiving that person as a listener at that moment. And so if you're projecting when you're out in the world, don't tell me anything. I'm too busy. You know, I, you know, I, I don't have time for you. You're going to miss an awful lot. And, and that's really what life is all about is connecting with others and learning from others and growing with others. And the only way you can do that is by listening to them, mm. finding out what's on their mind. Do you think as a culture, we have become worse listeners? Oh, yes, I definitely do. <laughs> that, that, that was why I wrote the book. Mm. And I, it, it's, it's not just as individuals. And I really want it to get across that this book is not a finger-wagging book. Yeah. It's, it's all of us. And it isn't because we're all blowhards. Though there are a lot of those. But we really are encouraged not to listen. From really early on, if you think about when you're a little kid, Mm-hmm. Just think of the word listen. When people say listen to me. That's bad. That's like, or it's annoying, or it's like you've well, done something wrong or something. Yeah. yeah, and like you're not going to like what's coming next. Sure, sure. And, right. and it's also telling you be submissive. Mm-hmm. Who wants that? So, you know, you're starting out with that or, you know, or, and then, then there's the, the deadly when your romantic partner says, listen, we need to talk. Yeah, right. Listen. Of you know, yeah. you're like, oh, God. <laughs> what's coming what's coming next so there's that but then if you think about how we're taught about communication that we're always told talking's more important you need to have your elevator pitch you need to get your point across you need to be eloquent if you just look in what how we're educated there's debate there's elocution there's argumentation we we learn those are courses but are there any courses to teach listening and, and, and it is a skill. It is an absolute skill that we need to practice. And we have fewer and fewer opportunities. I mean, we can talk all day about to how technology is degrading our ability to listen and taking away opportunities. I mean, anyone who's had a dinner with someone else and they've been then sneaking glances at their phone all through dinner. Sure. I mean, how does that make you feel? Mm-hmm. And, and, and yet the same people who know how really soul-crushing that makes them feel and how they're less likely to really share anything in those circumstances, they do that as well. <laughs> you know? And so it's, it's this, this vicious cycle. But also if you just think about our environments, modern life is very loud. People have televisions going on all the time. When we used to go to restaurants, restaurants are incredibly loud. Um, we've got traffic noise. We've always got a hum in the background, jets going overhead, helicopters, you know, depending on where you live. But it's, it's also we just we have a really loud environment. And so there are all these pieces working together to keep us from listening. And as a result, we've gotten really bad at it. Just like, you know, if you haven't gone running in a long time and all of a sudden you're thrown in a circumstance of doing, okay, let's do a 50-yard dash or, you know, much less run a marathon of having a really long, in-depth conversation with someone, you, your your muscles are sore. Your muscles aren't prepared for that. You, you're not going to be good at it, and you're going to quickly zone out. It's funny, you know, on this on this program, we recently did a long program on on loneliness, and and the the researcher talked about one big aspect of this is how individualistic we've become as a society and how we're so focused on the I or on the, the you know, the creator, the content creator, the writer, the, the things that we tend to prize, which are these uh, kind of individualistic voice-centered pursuits. And you're absolutely right. I mean, in all of this, where is the role of the listener, the listener or, or the person that can sit quietly and take things in? That, that's not a prized aspect of who we are anymore, don't you think? Well, it's not, but, you know, as I argue in the book and have a lot of examples, but when you're talking about, you know, we prize the writer, the content creator, maybe the really great orator, mm-hmm. the, but the people who are really talented, 
who are really good at that are the people who know their audience, uh. who know their end user if they're creating a product. And how do you get there? You have to listen to people. You have to know what they are lacking. You have to know what motivates them, what their beliefs are, how they form them. And it's, that is how people are successful. Even the people that are the greatest speakers, the people who really are so inspiring, are the ones that have put in the time to know people's level understanding, what gets people excited, what words to use. It's all in the listening. It's all front-loaded, all of these things that we value now. It's front-loaded with listening. And that's this, this quiet, <laughs> um, hidden aspect that builds upon it mm -hmm. and, and, and how you are successful in really anything. You need to listen first, whether it's professionally or personally. There's no way to connect with others in a commercial or a personal sense unless you listen to them. It makes me think almost of some of the the Daniel Kahneman research, the system one and system two thinking. The, the system mm -hmm. one is the really quick judgment making. We think we know what it is immediately. And the system two says, wait, there might be more complexity, but sometimes it's harder to get there. It takes a little bit more attention and effort to get to the system two. But I think that's what you're talking about, right? Which is just getting through the gut reaction and then really listening. Because what I find, and I've had the same experience as you, that when you're actually doing the listening, there's a lot more going on than you really think. Absolutely. I mean, I have a chapter in my book talking about assumptions as earplugs. Right. Where, you know, it's, it's deadly. Because once you start assuming things about people, you, you miss so much. Because you've moved on figuring, okay, I got this which is what our brains do. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly what Daniel Kahneman talks about. It is just, and it's part of that conservation of brain energy where we think, okay, we've got this. I'm going to move on to something else. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and we do that too quickly. And as a result, we miss so much. And it, it's not only with people you don't know, as we've been talking about, but also as we were talking about earlier, people you do know, because you are never going to fully know another person. Mm -hmm. It's an exploration every day. Because I mean, think about, do you even really know yourself? Right. You know, sometimes you're shocked by the things that come out of your own mouth. Why did I just say that? Mm -hmm. As you were just talking, I kept thinking, and I think this is something that so many of us can relate to of of what a gift it is to be listened to attentively. I mean, what what a real rare gift it is and what an incredible benefit it can have that we've all probably experienced at different moments of our life. Well, in a lot of that mail I get, I get stories about someone who listened to them right. when they really needed it. Or, you know, conversely, you know, the, the, where someone said, you know, I've always said that the sexiest thing a man can do is listen to me, <laughs> you know? And I, I, I really think it is the greatest gift you can give, not only to those you love, but those that you could love, and even strangers. I mean, it is the biggest act of generosity you can extend to another person, giving them your attention. And that's not to say you, you, and you absolutely can't. I mean, there's no time, there's not enough time in the day to listen to everyone. But I just, I guess I would encourage people to, you know, when they are in circumstances like that, to realize how much is available to them if they only listened. Well, Kate Murphy is a journalist and author of You Are Not Listening, What You're Missing and Why It Matters, um, from, from one person who tries to listen to another person who listens as well. <laughs> Thank you for this conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it too. Thank you so much. Once again, that was Kate Murphy. She's a journalist and author, and you can find her writing in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and a number of other publications. Still to come on the show, the four villains of listening and the importance of breathing, meditation, and posture. And just a reminder that if you missed any of our shows, head on over to Apple Podcasts for the full library. There you can find last week's episode with Terry Tempest-Williams. She shares some original writing about wildfire season. This is Life Examined on KCRW. 
We'll be back after this short break. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard journalist and author Kate Murphy say how listening is, quote, the greatest act of generosity you can extend to another person. So what is the cost of not listening? Does the inability to listen sow confusion, chaos, and conflict? As we'll learn in just a minute, the brain thinks much faster than we speak, which means, oftentimes, the intended message of the speaker isn't very clear. So how do we learn to work with this, slow down, and really pay attention? Oscar Tromboli is a podcast host and author of Deep Listening, Impact Beyond Words. He says listening is situational and relational, meaning we listen differently in different contexts and scenarios. But ultimately, we all face the same four poor listening villains, which we'll get to in just a minute. Oscar joins us from his home in Sydney, Australia. Oscar Tromboli, welcome to Life Examined. G'day, Jonathan. Looking forward to listening to your questions. (laughs) I love that. Thank you. Um, Speaking of listening, something that that both of us care deeply about, why have you been so fascinated by it and and been talking about it for for quite some time now? Why is it of such importance to you? For me, I've been lucky that I grew up in a community where there was 23 different nationalities at my school. So I always was kind of listening in a really different way. But when I got into the workforce, I quickly realized this was actually an advantage or a superpower, but something that other people didn't have. They tended to listen through one lens. And for me, in my work career, what I discovered is the cost of not listening is something we, we don't consider, whether mm. it's a customer that we don't win or an employee leaves before they want to, could be a project that's running over schedule, or when you listen to any commission of inquiry, we've had so many commissions of inquiry, whether it's the Challenger disaster way back when the space shuttle exploded because Mm. people weren't listening to the engineers or most recently with Dr. Wei-Ling Li, an ophthalmologist who loved to play basketball in Wuhan. Uh, He he notified his friends very quickly within two days of the concern he had around the coronavirus and basically said, look after your elders. But the police authorities asked him to take that little chat off WeChat and uh, the seven days they spent investigating him, the virus spread to northern Italy and Mm. uh, northwest USA. So the cost of not listening to me is huge. And I just wish more people understood that the root cause of confusion, chaos and conflict is often the absence of listening. You've looked a little bit at the science of listening, and and I'd be curious to, to kind of to bring that into the conversation as well. Yeah, we've looked at it from multiple perspectives. We've looked at it from a neuroscience perspective, but also from a linguistics perspective as well. From a neuroscience perspective, I'd love everybody to know this about listening. If there's only one thing you take away from today's conversation, the one twenty-five nine hundred rule, I speak at 125 words a minute, but I can think at 900 words per minute. So the likelihood that the first thing that I say is actually what I mean, it's like 11%. You Mm. get better odds in a casino in Las Vegas. (laughs) So one of the first pieces of science you need to know is that whatever the person says immediately is what they say immediately. We don't send an email straight away. We probably type it out, make some edits, and then do a send. But when it comes to speaking, we assume that whatever the person says the very first time is exactly what they mean. And the opposite is true for the listener when it comes to their neuroscience. Although the person speaking at 125 words per minute, the listener can listen at 400 words per minute. So we are programmed to be distracted. 
In fact, you can only listen continuously for 12 seconds mm. and then your mind will go somewhere else. So from the, from the brain's point of view, if, if we know these really simple basics, we can start to become aware of a couple of simple things to do. We had fun with the linguistics and, and worked with uh, listening professors around the world and came up with a listening quiz where the four villains of listening emerge from the way people think. Mm. they listen versus the way they actually listen as well. So we had some fun and we created the four villains of listening. And that was a a three-year research project that's still ongoing. Over 8,000 people have taken the quiz now. Mm. And one thing that's consistent, Jonathan, is that 1,400 listeners have said, hey, I'd love you to track my progress. And the three things they always say improves their listening switching off their cell phone, drinking water every 30 minutes during an extended conversation and taking three deep breaths at the beginning of a conversation. Hmm. Wow. Uh, Such such simple things, as you say, that that really strikes me is particularly the water. Uh, But but maybe you can tell me why you think those those are effective. Well, the first thing to say is they're simple to say and they're difficult to practice. Mm. (laughs) Right. True. So for for many of us, there's a a level of addiction to the cell phone, to the laptop, to to the tablet, to any form of electronic device that's distracting us. And it's no coincidence that the psychology and the PhD research that was used for slot machines in Las Vegas to make sure people kept pressing the button on the machine endlessly. Uh, The same research has been used to make sure that you have your notifications on on your phone. Mm -hmm. So those little red dots seem really attractive. They make them even more attractive and they put numbers around them to really suck you in. And I always say, as someone who spent 30 years in the technology industry, use the technology, don't let the technology use you. And and the practicality, you know, for a lot of people, if I said to them, you know, switch off your phone, Jonathan, I'd sound like a drug dealer who mm. just took away your drugs. Right, right. Mm. And and for most of us, just switch your phone into airplane flight mode would be a great starting point. There, there is research to say that if your phone is on, you're you're still paying attention to it when it's off. Mm. Uh, your, your mind's in a much more relaxed state. The breathing and the water are all connected to the biology of the human body. The mind, the brain, 5% of body mass, but it consumes 26% of our blood sugars, Jonathan. Mm. And listening takes part in the modern part of the brain. It's called the prefrontal cortex. If you put your hand just on top of your skull, on your forehead, right there, just sitting behind that is the most modern part of the brain. And it's a very hungry process to listen because people don't know how to do it. They weren't taught at school and they can probably speak about wine or cheese in a more complex, nuanced way than they can talk about their listening. The three deep breaths just sends a signal to the part of the brain and the body known as the parasympathetic nervous system. It's that part of your body that says everything's okay, you can relax. One of the things that are common myths around listening is it's your job as the listener to make sense of what they're saying. Mm. The dirty little secret of listening is to be potent and powerful as a listener. Your job is just to help the speaker make sense of what they're thinking. That last part, I think, is is really important because as as a listener, we think, oh, there, there needs to be the perfect retort, there needs to be the response. But but what you said there strikes me as as a much different way of thinking about this, which is to support the speaker, to to help them express what they mean. Can you say a little bit more about that? For many of us, we're addicted to that process of jumping in and interrupting. We're addicted to the process of fixing mm. and we we want to contribute to the dialogue one thing when i work with my clients around this is i often say to them if it's a one-on-one dialogue you're having with somebody sometimes the only question you need to ask at the beginning of the conversation is how would you like me to listen now some people say in that moment they're quite shocked because the people they're speaking to simply say look i just want 
I just want you to listen. I'm just trying to process something. I don't think there's an easy answer. If there is, I probably would have come up with it. But just just hear me out. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people say, yeah, I want to evaluate. I want to look at alternatives. I want to come up with solutions. But it helps you notice where your listening is at. Too many of us are listening from our side of our brain rather than from the other side, listening from where they're coming from. So again, it comes back to that simple 125-900 rule, Jonathan, we mentioned earlier on. Once you are comfortable knowing your position in the conversation, you can play a really powerful role to help them express exactly what they mean rather than what they say. And you know when it's happened. And Jonathan, you've probably seen this happen yourself. If you just take a moment longer and they go into a five-minute tirade about some particular issue, they'll feel like they're completely exhausted. A really powerful, potent question to ask them at that point is simply tell me more about that. Mm. And often they'll take in a deep breath. You'll notice their shoulders go back, their spine becomes erect, and they'll use this phrase while sighing. They'll go, well, actually, Jonathan, now that I've thought about it, what's more important is we talk about this. Yeah. Or they'll say, now that I've thought about it, could we just spend a little bit more time over here exploring it? And then listening becomes really light for you as the listener, but it becomes really powerful for them as the speaker. I want to I wanna jump to the question of, of the four villains in listening. This is something mm -hmm. that, that you referenced a bit earlier in our conversation, and it's something that you've been working on through, through studying this. So, so what are the four villains? So the four villains came about when I consistently heard people in my workshops, people that I'd worked with say to me, Oscar, men and women listen differently. Hmm. And I, I, I spent a lot of time going through the research. There's research that's been done in MRI machines about looking at brain imaging and how the female brain processes in multiple parts of the mind as opposed to the male part of the brain, which focuses on a really narrow part of the brain, which won't surprise anyone, is problem-solving. So what I speculate is, and what they always say to me, is women listen to feel and men listen to fix. And this made me curious, and I thought, well, I'm not always like that, and great female leaders I've interacted with aren't always like mm -hmm. that. Let me start a research. And we started by researching the barriers. What are the things that are getting in people's way when it comes to listening? So we researched a thousand people about what gets in their way. And we also researched a completely different thousand people. And we asked them what really frustrates them when other people don't listen. And our researchers came together with four archetypes, four listening villains, the four things that most consistently got in the way based on the research. Because people think they're great listeners, but they can't describe what they do when they are listening well. Yet when it comes to listening poorly, everybody can describe it very easily. Mm. Thus, the villains came to life. And what we noticed, the four villains were the dramatic listener, the interrupting listener, the lost listener, and the shrewd listener. The dramatic listener loves to listen to your story because it gives them a stage to tell theirs. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm really struggling with my boss right now, Jonathan. And you jump in and say, you think you've got problems with yeah. your boss. Let me I've tell you about mine. Even worse. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so this is a dramatic listener. And what they value is connection. Uh, they move from empathy to sympathy really quickly in a conversation. So it's the dark side of being too connected through a story. It's 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 okay to um, tell a story, but it's when it's appropriate. And people who leave a conversation with a dramatic listener just say, oh, again, it's always been about them. The interrupting listener is the quiz show contestant that hits that buzzer before the host has finished asking a question and right. they just answer the wrong question. <laughs> so they value time more. They're very productivity orientated and the, their mind is going really quickly and they're going, oh, I, I, I can pat and match, I can tell where we're going. And all of a sudden they realize they aren't actually 
answering the right question. Unfortunately for the interrupting listener, in only one third of cases will the speaker tell you you've interrupted them. In two thirds mm. of cases, they will just let you continue and disconnect from the conversation. That's interesting. So that's yeah. a it's a good example of the cost of not listening. The lost listener is distracted by internal and external distractions. They may be distracted right now. You may be thinking about what you want to have for breakfast or lunch. You could be thinking about what kind of chores you need to do for the weekend. Uh, you could be thinking about a holiday that you wish you could have and you're drifting away because you can only listen continuously for 12 seconds before you need a reset. But the lost listener is also distracted by external things, their phone, the coffee machine in a coffee shop or, or another conversation. And, and they look vague to the speaker. The, the, their eye contact is not always where it should be. And then finally, the shrewd listener. You know, the shrewd listener is disproportionately represented in the following professions, the medical profession, uh, any industry that takes a brief, accountants or lawyers or salespeople, mm. anybody who has problem solving at the primary orientation of where they see their value. So if you are seeing the closed captioning for a shrewd listener, they're, they're listening incredibly intently. In fact, they're, they're brilliant fake listeners. They nod. They give great mm-hmm. <laughs> but in their mind, they're going, oh, my goodness, this is such a basic problem. I can't believe I studied 11 years at university and did a master's and a PhD, and we're still dealing with these basic problems. I wish you'd hurry up because I can tell you three other problems you haven't thought about. Mm. And they're drifting away trying to get in a problem-solving mode. And for me, I'm a shrewd listener. Professionally, I'm a shrewd listener and lost at home. So listening is situational. It's relational and it's contextual. Yeah. You'll listen differently to people. You'll listen differently to a police officer than you will to a school principal, for example. Yeah, I think that last point is pretty fascinating, that, that we can embody any of those uh, those four villains or archetypes, like you just said, depending on the context, depending on the situation. So we're kind of malleable listeners too, aren't we? Well, we're humans and we're amazing, creative, flexible instruments. You know, for me... My brother-in-laws visit re really regularly on a weekend, and there's always this religious debate, Jonathan, and they get mm. into this religion so much, and I just disconnect because it's the religion of Canon cameras versus Nikon cameras, and neither will <laughs> succeed. Nobody will admit that uh -huh. their camera could be actually better at some things than others, and I just disconnect. <laughs> uh, I just drift away. It's like uh, occasionally they say to me, what do you think, Oscar? And I said, I, I use my phone as a camera. I don't think I'm qualified to be part of this conversation. <laughs> right, right. So uh, that that's where it shows up too. But, you know, it also shows up in patterns. So I, I remember three years ago I was speaking to somebody in Chicago and they were saying to me, it, it was it was October and they said, well, we've got this grumpy uncle who comes to Thanksgiving dinner and he always messes it up. Um, how do we listen to him? Because he goes on this really continuous regular tirade. And this is a really good example of relational listening. So I said, just ask him, when did he first form this opinion? The, the opinion was expressed as a political point of view. And they sent me an email in early December saying, I cannot believe what happened at our Thanksgiving dinner. We asked, I asked the question, when, when did you first form this view? And the grumpy uncle basically said, when I came back from Vietnam, everybody ignored me. Nobody paid me attention. Nobody respected the duty I undertook on behalf of this country to protect freedom. And the conversation for the rest of the night was completely different. There was a connection beyond belief. And they've stayed in touch. And every Thanksgiving dinner now, that grumpy uncle is now a valued member of that community and considered a wise elder uh, where people ask really important questions. But in the past, all they did was listen to how he's expressing himself from a mm. political point of view rather than listen to what he actually meant, which was taking them back to the beginning of that story. And there is such a shift in empathy with that question. 
because mm. because we love to shortchange people. We we love to think, oh, this was just a ridiculous thought. But that moment right there was real insight into who someone is, and that's something we're not often interested in, in looking at. So I, I just want to point that out, that there's something, I think, kind of extraordinary with that with that question. People say to me, Oscar, all oh, this listening caper, it takes so much more time. And I always say, not as much time as the cost of this really ritualistic approach mm. to praying at the altar of the same story, God. You know, it, with the grumpy uncle, they were... It couldn't have been very pleasant to come to Thanksgiving for him, let alone them. But in that moment where they just listened a little bit, they listened a little bit differently, That that's transformed not just Thanksgiving dinner, but it's also transformed the relationship with the uncle, yeah. with the nephew, with the nephew's children and, and the surrounding family. But for many of us, we are stuck in a set of railway lines that, the rails are fixed, and Carl Rogers famously said that listening is the willingness to have your mind changed. And it, it, that's a mindset you need to turn up with to a conversation. And, and for me, how I practice that, every, every Sunday while I do my, my gardening and my lawn duties, I, I, I consistently listen to recordings of opinions I fiercely disagree hmm. with. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's hard to listen as opposed to react and say, I don't believe in that perspective. So at the moment, there's no shortage of material for me, Jonathan, to explore opinions I don't disagree with. But the practice of every Sunday committing to my gardening duties while listening to differing opinions, as you mentioned, it makes me more empathetic to where they're coming from. I may not disagree. And Carl Rogers said... It's your willingness to have your mind changed. He didn't say you need to change your mind. It's the willingness to have your mind changed. That's the mindset that many of us don't turn up to in a conversation. I've been chatting with Oscar Trimboli. He's the author of Deep Listening, Impact Beyond Words. Um, I really enjoyed listening to you here today and and learning some new things. Thank you, Oscar, for, for sharing this with us. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening, Jonathan. Both Kate Murphy and Oscar Tromboli talked about the importance of creating the right space to listen. And this right space even includes how we are in our own bodies. Bad posture, slouching over our phones or computer, causes us to tighten and close up. Opening our bodies through relaxed posture allows a greater calmness for an open mind. So can listening to ourselves first help us better hear what others have to say? Joining us now is Hope Martin. She teaches the Alexander Technique, Embodied Listening, and Meditation at Hope Martin Studio in New York City. She's also a teacher in the Shambhala Buddhist tradition. Hope Martin, welcome to Life Examined. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. You teach a listening class, and and I wonder, what what are some of the obstacles you find uh, that people have in terms of becoming better listeners? Well, I think it's... um... We're sort of full of our opinions, our ideas about things, our strong emotional responses. And um, very often that's what we're expressing when we're listening, Mm. supposedly listening. All of that stuff gets in the way of uh, being fully present to another human being. Thinking about this idea of of meditation, you, you've you've spoken about about body posture. In fact, when we're trying to listen, that 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 can play a role in in being receptive. Can you say more about that? Yeah, definitely. I, I teach a practice called the Alexander Technique, which is a Western contemplative practice that's been around for over a hundred years. Mm. And basically, it's a study of the self, and it's about noticing your own responses in the form of. Uh, habitual bodily patterns of posture and holding and sort of just the shape we're taking and how we approach our activities. Do we overwork? Do we tighten? Do we push? And can we um, come fully present into our body, inhabit our bodies fully, and learn to be more balanced, less held, more expansive, 
more grounded, lighter, and kind of a fuller sense of uh, being, quite literally. Mm. Our physicality not compressed, not constrained, not constricted. So being sensitive to yourself as you're listening to someone else is a wonderful tool, and it helps in not being reactive with another person or going into habitual ways of responding to people like giving advice or trying to be helpful when it isn't helpful, Mm. that sort of thing. It's interesting thinking of, of a closed body position or posture somehow representing a a closed state of mind, um, which, which almost uh, seems to be what you're getting at. And, and, and I wonder what a, what is a good posture for listening look like? Well, it would be um, honoring your structure. Mm. So, and understanding a little bit about your structure. So knowing that the head, which is very heavy, um, can balance in a very light poised way at the height of the top of the spine. Now, most people don't know where the height of the top of their spine is, but the spine actually extends behind the jaw all the way to between the ears. So having cultivating a, a kind of full let go neck so that the neck isn't constricting and pulling the head, the weight of the head back down in the spine allows an easier upright. Hmm. And then also knowing where your, where your sit bones are on your pelvis and really learning to sit on your sit bones. There are listeners, if you're listening to this, you might even try this a little bit as you're listening to the interview. And then letting the ribs be soft and um, movable and have, just having more internal space in your body, not, not neither slumping, which is the common tendency, and yeah. then what we do in response to that is to lift and pull up and get sort of tight. So learning to be right in the middle, which <clears throat> is actually kind of the shape of equanimity, not pushing and not withdrawing, being very present. When we find ourselves in this kind of healthier open posture and when we do sit with people, I, I wonder how, how do we work with some of those, those, those rough reactions that can come up within us, uh, the judgmental aspect of the brain, um, all, all of the things that, that can make it hard, frankly, to tolerate people at times and to, to sit peacefully with, with what another person is saying. Right, absolutely. I think it's a lot about learning to actually be interested in our own responses hmm. and not have to throw them off. And so just taking a minute to, to be in a more expansive posture, supported by the earth so you can let go of some tension, and then just letting some of that live in you without feeding it so much with words. And that's the skill of meditation, because we also learn to recognize our constant thinking. And so when we can let that go a little bit, we can experience it more in a bodily way and let it settle Mm -hmm. and let our nervous system settle. And then maybe, of course, we want to respond, but responding from a more settled place is uh, I guarantee you will be more skillful. Mm. No, it, it's interesting. I mean, this this idea of um, of being a good listener might mean first being able to listen to ourselves, just as you say, and and to understand ourselves a little bit better. What 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 does arise in us? What makes us tick? What makes us want to to fight back? Yeah, I know it seems paradoxical, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. That in order listen to someone else it's it's um, necessary to begin to listen to yourself Hmm. but in fact I I really do believe that and I've seen it over and over again you know one thing I've noticed on this program with with some guests we've had on Terry Tempest Williams just just a week ago and how when they listen they'll oftentimes pause before they respond almost giving it a breath uh, acknowledging a little bit of silence before just you know rattling off to the next thing is that something you suggest uh, working with a little bit of that space before before we just you know 
uh, say what we think we need to say? Absolutely. It's, uh, it's completely necessary. If you want to work with your habitual patterns at all, that space, that pause, that kind of active pause, because um, there's a lot of velocity in our habits. Mm-hmm. Our habits of speech, our habits of mind, our habits of body. And if we are willing to pause, we give ourselves time to actually experience our own impulses. Mm. And that makes for more skillful interaction. Yeah. You know, we might realize, oh, maybe that wouldn't be a skillful thing to do to to, uh, interrupt that person and uh, whatever else we might. And it just makes me think for those that are, you know, in intimate relationships, sometimes the absolute hardest thing to do when you're both wound up and want to get into something is take a breath to think about what's about to happen and to settle yourselves into a different state of mind before talking. Absolutely. I, in some ways it takes courage to experience yourself and not just, you know, push it, push your state of mind out into the world. Alexander had a wonderful, um, in his process, he came up with something that was uh, vital to changing habitual patterns and he called it inhibition. Mm. But he was pre-Freud. He wasn't talking about being inhibited or having inhibitions. He was talking about on the level of the nervous system stopping, not doing something. And that's exactly what we're talking about. And again, it really does go back to meditation practice because if we're so involved in ourselves, we can't really see other people and we can't directly perceive accurately the world around us. Hope Martin teaches the Alexander Technique, embodied lessening and meditation at Hope Martin Studio in New York City and venues in the U.S. and abroad. She also teaches in the Shambhala Buddhist tradition. It, it's been really nice having you on, and I've enjoyed taking the pause with you uh, today. Yeah. I appreciate thank, the time. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for having me. I really, I really enjoyed our conversation. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. You can also email me your feedback directly at jonathan.bastian at kcrw.org. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.